Welcome to the Barnes and Thornburg Podcast Network. You're listening to Trial Ready, a podcast dedicated to learning about the work of trial lawyers and their insights into the legal issues of today. To learn more, visit us online at btlaw.com. Welcome back to Trial Ready with your host, me, Mina Sedfeld, and my partner, Michelle Bradford. As you know, this is Barnes and Thornburg's podcast dedicated to hearing and learning about trial attorneys and what they do. Thanks to everyone who's listened to last month's episode with Sandra Coe. Today, we're doing something a little different. We are featuring two of our financial and regulatory litigation partners, Trace Schmeltz and David Slavik. Trace co-chairs the firm's financial and regulatory litigation practice group, along with our own Michelle Bradford. David Slavik is a partner in our New York office and who worked for the CFTC and Securities and Exchange Commission, also known as the SEC. And hopefully he'll explain to us the alphabet soup later on in the podcast. But before we learn any further about David and Trace, let's get our preliminary questions going. Michelle, let me hand it over. Well, thank you, Mina, and welcome, Trace and David. You're our first two-hitter um, guest, so thank you for being willing to experiment with us. Trace, I'm going to start with you with our preliminary questions. Tell our uh, listeners who you are and what you do. My name is Trace, and uh, I largely I do uh, litigation in the financial space, so it, it, or investigations uh, or the like. But if it involves uh, trading, either securities or commodities, if it involves uh, understanding complex financial instruments or even alleged financial fraud, uh, I would get involved in that. And tell us, what have been your top three jobs in the legal profession? Well, I, I just truly love, um, I love being a lawyer. I know that's super dorky, but uh, I think the opportunity to learn uh, about new clients and learn about new areas is always something I enjoy. So in the course of my career, I had, uh, I started out as a straight civil litigator uh, and I got to try a lot of cases in that capacity. Uh, I went to uh, Skadden Arps and I got to be it more in the financial space. I got to represent um, uh, big companies and big investigations. And I love that aspect. Uh, and then in the sort of later phase of my career, I've gotten to work with a lot of trading firms uh, on the securities and commodities side and really get to know kind of the behind the scenes of what they do and why they do it and why the traders do what they do, what motivates people. Uh, that, that's always to me sort of the most interesting thing about the law is why, why do people do what they do for, for better or worse? Why have people done what they've done? And I've been in those sort of phases in my career able to do that. Well, you didn't answer my question. And my question was, what have been your top three le jobs in the legal profession? So you mentioned Skadden. I'm going to assume Barnes is number two, right? And so maybe there's a third place you've worked, or maybe there's a position you've held, like being co-chair with me, um, that you find to be exceptionally re rewarding. Which one uh, is it? I will say being co-chair of the Financial and Regulatory Litigation Group with you is a highlight of my career. Uh, without question. I've spent 10 years at Barnes and Thornburg and I've gotten to help grow this firm and help watch it grow. And it's, that's been super exciting. I think, you know, in, in two years at SCAD and I built something like 6,000 hours. So like it, it was very rewarding. Uh, and I learned an immense amount. Uh, I was a partner uh, at um, Mayor Brown with uh, an accounting accountant liability and securities group 
there. And I just learned an enormous amount there from, from people about the practice of law and what it means to take complex ideas and make them clear and simple for people. I worked with tremendous trial lawyers and brief writers there. And I think that was a huge uh, component of my development as a lawyer. So okay. there, I think I've answered your question, Counselor, now. You have. You've gone above and given me four instead of just three, but I'll take it. Um, now tell me, Trace, what is your number? And for purposes of this question, your number can include arbitration hearings as well as contested administrative hearings, okay? So typically we have our lawyers just tell us our trial number, but because I know in the financial sector it's a little different, you're not always in the courtroom, what do you think your number is? And you can give us ballpark. So I'm between 25 and 30. And in that, I happen to be able to include an interesting contested hearing in Denmark that I was able to conduct for, we were trying to get a witness in Denmark and the judge uh, made us come over and present evidence to support that. So that, that's my claim to additional fame. And I have a 16 week you know, criminal bank fraud jury trial in there. So I have I run the gamut on that one, but between 25 and 30. No, that's an impressive number. I, I want to hear more about Denmark. But before we get there, Mina, you're going to be questioning David. Yeah, no, I, I want to hear a little bit more about this Denmark uh, hearing also. But let's talk to David first. All right, David, you got a little bit of a preview, but we do. our listeners want to hear a little bit more background on you now. So tell us a little bit about who you are and um what you do. Okay. My name uh, is David, as we probably all know by now. Um, as Michelle mentioned at the top, I spent a lot of my career, about 10 years total in the government. I spent about four in a little bit at the Securities and Exchange Commission and five in a little bit at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, um, <clears throat> which are, believe it or not, kind of the same agency. Um, I was in the enforcement division of both places. And even though they deal in different markets and even though they deal with different market participants in different laws, um, at least as far as the enforcement function is concerned, they're basically the same shop. And that's because the CFTC is a much older agency than the CFTC. And when the CFTC was setting up business in its current form in the 70s, it basically just copied everything that the SEC had done. And so at least from a process standpoint and a structure standpoint, uh, they're the same thing. So um, most of my career on one side of the table or the other has been spent either prosecuting civilly uh, commodities and securities cases or defending them civilly on the defense side. And so, David, just for our listeners who may not uh, understand or may not know, when you say enforcement, that means prosecution? It does, but not prosecution in the sense that we usually think of the word. Prosecution to... The average lawyer means criminal work and enforcement work is never criminal because the civil agencies, the CFTC and the SEC have no criminal authority at all. Um, so some of the some of the way a civil enforcement action goes forward mirrors the criminal process, but the end result can never be jail time for a defendant. Yes, it's this fun quasi kind of uh, agency or process, right? Correct. All right. So to date, what has been your most exciting job in or out of the legal field? Boy, um, you know, I think probably my most exciting job was the time that I spent at the CFTC. And 
The reason is that the CFTC, like I said, it's a much younger agency than the SEC. And a lot of folks know what the SEC is, but the CFTC is sort of like, you know, the little cousin that nobody's ever heard of. Um, the upside of that, though, is that you you basically get to run wild. Um, there aren't a lot of adverse precedents, either in terms of the case law or in terms of how an enforcement investigation is supposed to be run. And when I was there, I was a little older, which means I wasn't a kid. I had some experience. And so basically, I had no parents watching me. I got to do whatever I wanted, um, which was a lot of fun. Um, it allowed me to make some precedent in CFTC cases in district court and uh, basically just have a lot of good times. And it's a smaller agency, as I said, which means it's much more intimate. So you can stroll the halls at the CFTC in Washington and 90% of the people you bump into, you know, and you're friendly with. So I'd have to put that at the top of the list. And, and you always used your powers for good, right, David? Always. The government always does. It never makes mistakes. Um, <laughs> there are no bad lawyers at the government and they never do stupid things that are uh, reckless or unreasonable. Correct. <laughs> Except after you left. <laughs> right. Well, everything went to hell when I left. That's true. <laughs> all right. And David, what's your number? Of course, with all of the caveats that Michelle just gave. Correct. Um, I, I'm unfortunately a distant second to Mr. Schmelzer because um, so much of what happens in the civil agencies gets resolved informally. Um, and that even uh, goes for contested hearings. Um uh, as I think you said, mean it's sort of a quasi weird universe. So I'm going to put my number at 10 to 15. All right. Well, thank you, David. I'm going to hand it back to Michelle now. Yes. And Trace, I want to hear about Denmark. But first, I think what's really interesting about your career is that you have that deep knowledge of like financial institutions and even cryptocurrency and all these financial and regulatory things that most litigators shy away from. And then you also have this really deep bench for white collar practice, FCPA cases and traditional fraud cases. How did you develop or kind of craft your background so that you'd be able to serve on both sides in, 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 in that role on the financial and the regulatory side, but then also on the trial side and the white collar side? So really two ways. Uh, one, I'm old. Uh, it is shocking to wake up one day and realize you've been at it for over 20 years, 20, 24 years, right? So uh, I've had a lot of opportunities as a result. But the other thing for me has always been <clears throat> to jump in with both feet into whatever opportunity you're given and learn everything you can and try to add as much value as you can. And you find when you do that, people say, hey, why don't we give that knucklehead in the corner another chance to try X or Y because, well, he's sure, he's at least sure working hard and as a great example of that, uh, I was at um, uh, I was in a big M&A trial as a young associate and, and there were accounting issues. And I said, oh, I can handle the accounting issues. <clears throat> and now it helped that they had like a University of Chicago accounting or no Notre Dame uh, professor of accounting who could teach me what I didn't know, which I knew Jack all at the time. And I got like I, doing all this work. I'm reviewing documents. I'm up all night. And I get a call and they say, hey, kid, uh, aren't you the kid who knows the accounting? I said, yeah. Could you be on a plane to South Dakota? We got to depose the CFO uh, in a couple of days and we need you there to help get everyone prepared and teach them the accounting so that they can do that work. And, and so 
you know, that's the kind of thing I got grabbed into, right? Uh, and it just was being there. It was being the last kid to leave the office. Uh, it was being the person willing to review the documents that no one wanted to look at because they didn't make any sense to anybody. And, and that's the approach that I've tried to take in my career. Well, that's great. And so I'm assuming it was that approach that landed you in Denmark in the midst of, was it an arbitration hearing? It was. Uh, so we were in the midst of class cert. And so we were contesting class cert for uh, a big tech company in a big securities fraud case. And we were trying to put on witnesses to show that uh, the, the class that they wanted to certify was uncertifiable for a variety of reasons, typicality and, and, and some other things. Uh, this particular witness in uh, Denmark was a crucial witness in the case. And we tried to subpoena them through the Hague Convention. And judges can have evidentiary hearings to make findings as to whether or not uh, you really have a valid reason for um, uh, valid reason for that witness. And so I had to go to Denmark. That witness came in to court. Uh, I cross-examined that witness in front of a judge. Uh, we did have some translators and I did have Danish counsel, but I got admitted to, to run that hearing myself. And the judge ultimately agreed uh, with me that we needed that witness and allowed us uh, to subpoena them. So it was a great result, but it was super fun, uh, you know, to go into a totally different legal system uh, and sit with the judge and try to figure out what that judge was going to think was important in a case, which is, right, what you're really always trying to do in any trial work is what will people find persuasive and what are people uh, go going, to, uh, going to care about? And, and that was what I was having to do on the fly uh, in Denmark. You know, thinking about, you know, your audience and what people will care about. You've done jury trials, bench trials, arbitration hearings. Do you have a preference amongst those types of proceedings, one over the other? And if so, why? I'm a hundred percent believer in the jury system. Uh, I think talking to people uh, is always important. Talking to real people who have daily lives and uh, some common sense and who you know, by and large, want to get it right. Sometimes they get it right for reasons that make you scratch your head, but but they're in there to to get it right, and they're in there to listen. And and I just think um, when you have an arbitrator or even an arbitral panel, um, you know, you you just got a different you, having twelve in a box is is so much better. I mean, you really the perspective people have. The, the give and take between and among jurors, uh, it's all uh, super uh, helpful to have that kind of full perspective. And, and, I, and I much prefer it to an arbitral panel in large part because you get sometimes a panel of people who think they're smarter than you, which they may very well be, but they're not listening, right? Uh, they're taking notes, they're writing checks, they're doing other things, they've already made up their mind. So you want people uh, to, uh, who will listen. So that's to me, what's critical about having 12, uh, in a box. Yeah. So one more question, and I know you've been really learning a lot about the world of cryptocurrency. You kind of have taken an interest in that DOJ recently announced that it's forming a national cryptocurrency enforcement team. How do you think this is going to affect the landscape involving cryptocurrency enforcement? 
So I, I think, you know, to David's original point about the SEC and the CFTC having this quasi prosecutorial function, I think you're going to see a lot more um, collaborative work between the SEC and the CFTC with straight referrals uh, going up to the DOJ uh, in that sort of way that we see in other areas of financial fraud, when people misuse financial instruments to rip people off, uh, the SEC or the CFTC will get the criminal authorities involved. I think you're going to see that. Um, I think you will see out of that um, a significant growth in uh, the number of professionals who have uh, cryptocurrency backgrounds which will be interesting, right? When people come out of the DOJ into private practice, what that means for the advisory side, the compliance side, et cetera. I think it's going to do a lot of things, but I think you're, you know, this is just an area that is ripe for ripping people off. And so you're going to see a lot more of that collaborative effort uh, up to real criminal uh, sanctions. So that's how I view that. No, thank you. And I think that's going to be uh, really interesting to keep track of and watch. And I think you're right that we're probably going to see um, a lot more enforcement and you'll probably see more white traditional white collar folks getting involved in more of these cryptocurrency and having to learn about it because it will become an asset in so many fraud investigations. But thank you for that. Mina, I'm going to turn it over back to you and David. So as one of those traditional white collar people, I'm super grateful for Trace and David because I frankly don't want to learn this stuff. I just want to lean on my other white collar colleagues to partner with. So Super happy to have Trace and David in our team. Um, David, so when you were a government attorney with the CFTC and the SEC, you were just saying that you um, did a lot setting new case law and precedent, and that was really exciting for you. So can you tell our listeners how that experience has been beneficial to you now that you're in the private sector and on the defense side? Sure. Um, I think the, the biggest benefit, the boost you get from being at the government, and I, I'm guessing this applies to the criminal world too, is that you have a really complete understanding of how the lawyers of the government are likely to field a question or approach a case or a problem or a witness or you know a hearing. And it allows you to advise the client in a really informed way. Um, I think one thing that people on the defense side forget is that the lawyers who work for the government are just a bunch of lawyers sitting in an office like we are all a bunch of lawyers who sit in offices. There's no, you know, great Oz behind the curtain and they have the same concerns and fears and, um, you know, process problems that people have on the defense side. So um, what you're able to do though is explain to the client, look, this is how the process works with the government. And so here's where they're, choke points are, here's what their concerns are with their bosses, and here's probably what they're concerned about, and here's the place to apply the pressure in this instance to get us um, the biggest benefit. And it also takes some of the fear away for clients when you can tell them that here's exactly how what's happening right now is working its way through the system of the government, and here's the end result for the likely end result. All right. And so um, also... What is your favorite part of trial preparation? That's a curveball. Um, I'll be honest with it. No part is my favorite part of it because it's nerve wracking. Um, so I, I think probably, and this, I guess, is not just limited to trial work. It's It covers all work. My favorite part about preparing for where, whatever it is you're going to do 
is the collaboration with the people on your own team and troubleshooting ideas and working through legal issues and coming up with winning solutions um, and ultimately being able to get the support you need from the people on your side of the table and uh, not having to feel like you're going something completely alone and that you're utterly in the woods. And uh, in the case of somebody like Trace, being able to tell you, have somebody to tell you when you have an idea that's completely ludicrous and that you shouldn't bother trying. Okay. So, uh, you know, we've seen in a lot of SEC and CFTC cases that these are very document intensive, right? And they involve complicated financial theories. So how do you go about um, maybe teaching these cases to younger attorneys um, or teaching them how to learn a case, how to work a case um, and kind of like work as a team? Yeah, it, it's, you know, like I, I suspect a lot of other specialized area of areas of the law. And that is you have to be involved in one of these cases from the beginning and I think one of the mistakes that we make in law firms um, that doesn't happen so much in, in an agency of the government is you tend to take a smart associate and because they're very smart at, you know, task X and force them just to continue to do task X because it makes your life easier, right? If you have a smart young attorney who's doing something for you and they can continue to, to do it very well, they tend to get stuck doing that and nothing else. But the only way you can learn how to do um, an SEC investigation, then a case or a CFTC investigation in case is to start from square one when you first have contact with the government and then to be involved in every element of it. So understanding what the administrative subpoena and testimony process is and then switching gears if necessary and working on a well submission. And then once you're over the well submission uh, stage, actually doing the litigation, you know, sending an attorney out, a young attorney out to uh, either attend or take a deposition um, or ride shotgun on one of those, going to all the hearings and at least watching how they unfold so you can see how each piece of the puzzle sort of drops into the place. There's too many lawyers who start out as very promising young firm lawyers who get to their sixth or seventh year and just don't have the overview of a case to then begin to run it on, on their own. So that's the biggest thing I think you need to do to teach young lawyers to be good old lawyers. And that is actually let them work on a case from beginning to end. So same question, but instead of with young attorneys, how do you uh, work your case so that you can explain to the average juror um, what this, these complicated financial theories and cases are about? Um, frankly, it's very, very tricky because a lot of these cases turn on incredibly abstruse questions of law that nobody really cares about unless you're a judge or a derivatives lawyer or or you know a big bank that stands to lose a billion and a half dollars on on the meaning of one obscure clause in the commodity exchange act so it's a challenge and um trace said earlier that he's a big fan of the jury system and i agree with him except in some of these most complicated cases when you really do need, frankly, a judge that has the background in, in at least in some, you know, comparable area of the law to understand how the law was supposed to be applied. Um, and in some cases, you can't. I remember watching uh, an insider uh, trading trial 
uh, in the Southern District not too long ago, and I was very familiar with the case from um, a witness or a, a defendant that I had in the case who didn't wind up at trial. And I think the jury came to the completely wrong conclusion, or at least a conclusion that wasn't based on the evidence and the law that they were presented with. So um, I think it's hard. I think it's it's probably the most difficult thing to make people who, who don't work in this area every day of their lives understand what it's about and why it's important. All right. Well, thank you. And um, now I am going to hand it back to Michelle for our most exciting part of our podcast. Yes. Well, the most exciting part has been hearing from David and Trace, of course. Um, but this is the most fun part for Mina and I, because we get to dig up interesting facts about each of you. And we're doing it a little different. Typically, we do a traditional cross-examination where you have to agree with every statement that is true. You're going to be doing that here, but there will be one false statement where you, you will have the opportunity to say, no, that is not true. Okay, so we gave you guys a little bit of a break because we know you're not in court all the time like we are in the criminal field. Okay, all right. So Mina, you're going to start with David. And I just want to say we we went nice and we played fair on these. Okay, so David, you're an avid hunter. Yes. You're also an avid bird watcher. No. You have a significant other who is a sommelier or a restaurateur. Yes. You previously received the SEC Chairman's Award for Excellence. Yes. All right. See, that wasn't that painful. I was, I was going to ask how many no's I got at this point. <laughs> only one. Only one no. Only one no. All right, Trace. And the, and there's no objecting either, right? Like you, you just get one no and no objecting. That's right. So we got three yeses coming and a no. If Trace is listening, he he will follow that format. All right, Trace. You attended the University of Kansas Law School, where one of our current partners was your professor. Uh, absolutely. You once helped rescue one of your partners when she locked herself in a bathroom at a restaurant. I kicked the door in. That's correct. You took a year off from law school to professionally play the cello. Uh, I wish that were true because it would be far more interesting than what I did, but uh, that's false. And you came to the rescue of that same partner who you rescued from the bathroom. You came to her aid again when she developed appendicitis while you two were traveling in Brazil for work. Uh, that That's correct. And, and what this may say is don't travel with me. I think <laughs> that's the residing theme here. <laughs> I was going to say, did, did she lock herself in the bathroom trying to get away from you? I, or? you Matthews <laughs> was there. Katie was there. And I tried to get Katie to go find out what was going on. But Katie was too enthralled in the conversation. Uh, I think, I think we're going to have to bleep out those names now, Trace. I don't <laughs> think you're allowed to use names. Well, they're not clients. They're not clients. <laughs> they're, they're partners. Of, I'm just disparaging our partners, not, not our clients. I'm kidding. Katie, no, it was a good, good, good uh, situation. Nobody locked themselves in a bathroom because of me. It was a faulty door uh, in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So, Well, Trace and David, thank you so much for being on our podcast. We've had a blast learning about you and the work you do. And thanks to all our listeners. Please tune in again next month for a brand new episode.